brother, not least to begin with this morning, I would ask you to open your Bibles, please, to the 19th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew in chapter 19. We now continue our study of that great salvation which is ours in our Lord Jesus Christ, especially we've been looking at the order of it. It's called the Ordo Salutis. Uh, but uh, we first began with uh, that which is set forth in Scripture, rooted in eternity, that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4, we saw that in many texts. But then in time, God called us, God drew us to Christ, joined us to him. Like when Paul uh, writes to the Thessalonians and he's saying, that God be thanked that he chose you for salvation before time through the sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. And then he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That effectual call, much like our Lord Jesus said in John 6.44, that no man can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. Or the text that our brother used this morning is called to worship, that uh, we were called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. That doesn't simply mean we were invited, wouldn't you like to come? But rather it's that coming with power and actually drawing us out of that native state and bringing us into God's marvelous light. And the same thing we see in Romans chapter 8, uh, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his own son, uh, uh, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified. Everyone called in this sense, it's effectual, that is to say they are justified and ultimately glorified. Well, so we've seen election, we've seen effectual calling. What next? What comes next in that order of uh, that great salvation that Christ has secured for us. Well, if you look at our confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, or if you look at the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, or if you look at the Savoy Declaration, all of these 17th century statements of truth, they go straight from calling to justification. There's no chapter on regeneration. Well, why not? Uh, didn't they believe in regeneration? Didn't they think it important enough? Well, the reason is that they treated regeneration under the broader heading of effectual calling. So, for instance, in chapter 10 of each of those confessions, verse 1, uh, uh, paragraph 1, rather, it speaks of a new heart. Paragraph 2 speaks of being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, which paragraph 3 of each of those confessions then defines as being regenerated. So you can see that, that they treated effectual call, regeneration under the heading of effectual calling. But since scripture mentions it as distinct from that calling, uh, well, we're going to at least take up this blessing today, both morning and again in the afternoon service. And we must begin with defining our term, regeneration. Uh, what is that? It, it literally means another genesis or a new beginning. And it's used only twice in the New Testament, both Greek and English, uh, one of which has absolutely nothing to do with that initial uh, personal salvation of sinners. And that's why I've directed your attention to Matthew in chapter 19. Peter's asked the question in verse 27 about, hey, we've left all, we've followed you, what will be ours? 
And then the Lord Jesus answered in verse 28, he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, uh, you who have followed me will sit, will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In the regeneration, obviously the Lord Jesus here is speaking of his coming and the age to come, the new heavens and new earth, uh, which will indeed be a radical transformation of creation that will be wrought by the mighty power of God. Right? I mean, for instance, in Romans chapter 8, the present creation is groaning for that time. Peter refers to it as the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, all the elements melting with fervent heat, and so forth. Revelation 21 speaks of it when God says, I make all things new. So, that's the word, regeneration, a new beginning. Now, the other use of this word in the New Testament speaks not of that new beginning, that is the new heavens and new earth, but a new beginning that is no less real. I would ask you to come, please, now to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. And this does speak of regeneration in that sense that uh, we're referring to our own salvation. Let me start at verse 3 of Titus and the third chapter. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God saved us, and he did so in this way through regeneration. That is to say, a new beginning or another genesis. Not just turning over a new leaf, but rather it speaks of a radical transformation in the core of our being by the mighty working of the Holy Spirit. So that word we saw in Matthew 19, it speaks of, well, creation itself going undergoing this radical transformation. Well, here it's applied not now to that, but it's applied to us, to the sinner who's saved. And there is, again, that kind of new work, that kind of new creation. Now, it's here called washing of regeneration, not because it has anything to do with baptism, except that baptism symbolizes it, teaches it perhaps, uh, but it speaks of an inward moral Cleansing, that is a cleansing in the heart that actually goes after that native defilement. Perhaps you're familiar with Ezekiel 36 where it talks about God giving a new heart, taking out that heart of stone, putting in that new heart, that heart of flesh. Well, that's the idea of that new heart of regeneration, a new work that God has done. But it's in connection with that new heart that we read there in Ezekiel 36, I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Now, that's not referring simply to forgiveness or uh, sin's defiling nature before God, but it's talking about a cleansing from within. So you're cleansed from, you used to be an idol worshiper, but now you've been cleansed within from that. Your heart is no longer engaged in that kind of filthiness and idolatry and the like. That's the idea of regeneration, a new beginning. Along with that, there in Ezekiel 36, it speaks of the other side, what here 
Paul refers to as the renewing of the Holy Spirit. You've got regeneration, washing within, but then you've got that renewing of the Holy Spirit, which again, if I might quote Ezekiel 36, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So along with that cleansing of the heart, there's also going to be that renewing of the Holy Spirit whereby the person is caused to walk in God's way. So it's truly a new beginning. And that's what the Apostle Paul is here talking. It's a positive change that then inclines toward and enables us to the right and the good. Much like uh, in the New Covenant, the law being written in our heart and in our minds, uh, this disposition uh, and enabling toward this. And that's what Paul's saying. Here's what we once were, foolish and the like, as he says there in verse 3. Paul includes himself. That's what we were. But wait a minute. That's not what we are now. Though it was so, we were so deeply uh, entrenched in these sins, yet here's what happened. God did this great work of regeneration, which was an internal moral cleansing, if you please, going after sin's defilement and our depravity, and at the same time, by the work of the Holy Spirit, did that great renewing, uh, giving us uh, a new heart and a new nature. Well, this is God's work, so real, so radical, and every sinner saved, that it is here literally called another Genesis. In fact, elsewhere we find it referred to as a work of creation. You're familiar with 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation or new creature. I wonder, it's in connection with that. You know, chapter 4, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians talks about the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness as shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I wonder if that's still in Paul's mind when he says, we're this new creation just as surely as God commanded light to shine out of darkness in original creation, so with us making us new creatures indeed. Ephesians chapter 2, please come there. That's another text that speaks of this as a creating work of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. You, dear brother, dear sister, you're all his doing. Not only your original creation, but now that spiritual life, all of grace, he's just got through saying, saved by uh, grace, not, not works. His workmanship. Paul continues really along the same line of thought in chapter 4 and verse 24, where he then talks about, and you put on the new man which was created according to, the, uh, to God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's a recreating work of God into his likeness. You find similar language over in Colossians 3.10 where it speaks of you're now a new man is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now you're very aware that in Genesis chapter 1 that man, woman was created in the image of God. But you're also aware that when we come to Genesis chapter 3, Adam's fall into sin that image was terribly marred, not obliterated. We find Genesis 9, also in James 3, references to man still being in God's image, but it's been 
obliterated a, a uh, illustration I've used from the past. You know, you take, uh, here's a coin that has an image on it. Let's talk about a penny. I know who's on that one. That's, that's Lincoln, right? Uh, so you got this penny, and somebody takes uh, a hammer and really smashes down on that penny. Well, you can still see dear Abe there, uh, but on the other hand, it, it's, it's marred that image. It's, yeah, I can make it out a little bit. It's not like putting on a railroad track, and when the train goes, it's just flat as a pancake. But, but it's, that image has been terribly marred, right? Uh, well... So it is, when Adam fell, the image was marred. That's interesting in Genesis chapter 5, you know, having said that man was made in, in God's image, then when we come to Genesis chapter 5, after the fall, we're told that, well, Adam had a son in his image. Does that point to the fact that, yeah, okay, still an image bearer of God, but not really like it was, that here's this image that's been now defaced and defiled by sin, and not just simply Seth, Adam's son, but then in all of Adam's uh, progeny. Well, the point is, looking at the language here in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, which speaks of our being recreated in the image of God, uh, that's the point. That image, yeah, you're creating God's image, but it was defaced and defiled by sin. Ah, oh, but God does this new creation, this recreation work that counteracts the fall, the restoring of God's image, as we see here in chapter 4, in knowledge and, and, and holiness and righteousness, same thing there in uh, Colossians chapter 3. And this is much in keeping with yet another word picture that's used, a very common word picture that's used to describe regeneration, and that is a new birth. Now, I think everyone here has heard that kind of language, born again. It's mentioned eight times in John's first letter. It's actually dealt with by our Lord himself in those well-known words in John chapter 3. And I would ask you then to come to John and chapter 3. Now, sadly, this language, born again, has been hijacked, tragically misused in kind of a psychological jargon, right? Anybody who's had some... Uh, uh, any kind of experience that causes them to make drastic changes, turn over a new leaf. Whoa, he's been born again. It's not that. And nor is it something that we get from God if and when we do certain things. When we meet certain requirements, then, well, we'll get born again and we'll get this new birth. No, it's a specific work of God that is performed in sinners. Something that happens to them by God's will. Just like with natural birth, right? Your first birth. It was not a matter of what we did. You know, I really worked on this, man. I got myself born here, right? Well, no. We, we're not going to be saying, yeah, that's, I did that. Well, so too with the new birth. The emphasis here in Scripture is what happened by forces outside ourselves. Notice here in John chapter 3, the Lord Jesus speaks of our being born of the Spirit. And then notice what he says in verse 8 of this chapter, uh, talking about it, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And the point is, it's not that you see the Holy Spirit doing something uh, physically going on here, but just like with the wind, you know it by its effect. And the Holy Spirit works where he wills, and the evidence of it is seen. But 
his working, uh, well, that's behind the scenes, as it were. And so, and it, but again, it underscores the Spirit as he wills, just uh, it's entirely his work, and it's no more determined by man than the wind's blowing is determined. I think I want the wind to blow over here today. Well, no, sorry, that doesn't work, right? Well, so too, he's saying, with the new birth. It's the Holy Spirit. It's his work according to his will. And God's sovereignty in the new birth is a note that is sounded repeatedly. For instance, come back to chapter 1 of John's Gospel. When the Lord, uh, when, when uh, John is writing here about what the Lord does in saving. Verse 13 of John 1, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The idea is the new birth is God's will. James chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will he begot us. He gave us the new birth by the word of God. And that's why, for instance, repeatedly in First John, it's described as being born of God. That is, he's the one who did this. Not something that we ourselves could do for ourselves, etc. It's all his doing. Not as a result of something that we did that God then responds to. Not something in which we somehow help God out here. In fact, that's one reason why the metaphor of the new birth is used. And what did we have to do with our own birth? Notice John 3, 5. The Lord Jesus did speak there. Of, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water... And the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, there are differing opinions. Suffice it to say, it has absolutely nothing to do with baptism. How incongruous. Well, you've got to be dipped or sprinkled or however you get water on you. You've got that and also the mighty work of the Spirit. Well, no, that's not the point that he's got. Some would say by water here, he's referring to the natural birth. Unless you've got the first birth and the second birth, well, you're not entering the kingdom. Uh, it also makes sense, though, to understand it as that symbolic of cleansing, like we saw the washing of regeneration. Uh, that uh, idea of an internal cleansing, that change of nature by God's Spirit. But in any event, he goes on to say in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, those who have been born again, they're not just flesh. They're not just typical fallen humanity. They've got a new nature. They've got spiritual life. They're alive to the realm of the spirit. Much like what we read in Romans 8. You know, it talks there about the carnal mind is hostile against God. It's not subject to the law of God. Can't be. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then Paul immediately says, but you, referring to the Lord's people, you're not in the flesh. If so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. The idea that when the Holy Spirit comes in that work of regeneration, it makes a new nature, it makes a new heart, quite the difference in the life from within. Now, this matter of life is emphasized in yet another word picture that's used to describe regeneration, and that is a resurrection. Please come to Ephesians chapter 2. Though we could just as easily turn to Colossians and, or, or John chapter 5 and elsewhere where this word picture is employed. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you, it's been supplied by the translators, he made alive 
who were dead in trespasses and sins. The point is, natively, that's us. Dead. Spiritually dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Well, what does that communicate? Well, it means natively we've no spiritual life. Insensitive to inactive in regard to things spiritual. No spiritual understanding. Paul says that over in 1 Corinthians 2. He cannot understand them. No native desire for the true God or the things of God. None seeks after God. Matter of fact, it's that carnal mind is hostile against him, like pictured in the book of Job. Depart from us, we don't desire a knowledge of your ways. No ability to live for God, nor even to choose those things that are pleasing to him, dead. It talks in verse 3 here uh, of following after the lusts of our mind and uh, uh, various kinds of lusts. Uh, our flesh and the mind, it says. So the idea that no ability to even choose or desire things that please God. And later Paul refers to our being alienated from the life of God. That's the idea. Spiritually dead. Alienated from God and the life of God. If you please, a, a spiritual corpse. You know, a lot about zombies out there in more recent years, right? Well, in, in a very real sense, not to sound insulting, but that is the unsaved. They're spiritual zombies, as it were. Uh, they're, they're spiritually dead. And you think of the typical fallen son of, uh, uh, or daughter of, of Adam. And, and what do we have here? But you have no concern about God and the things of God. Well, they might have their religion, or they might have... Some, but as far as... No, they're the walking dead. And this actually goes back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam's fall into sin. You remember what was said, the day you eat of this fruit, you'll surely die. Well, actually, Adam lived 930 years. How can it be said he would die that day? Well, he didn't die physically that day, obviously, but... He did die spiritually. So in Genesis chapter 3, we've got God sending him out of the garden, driving him out of the garden. The idea is that he's spiritually dead and that he's now separated from God. And not just Adam, but then we in him, all of his progeny. progeny sorry. Uh, the idea that, that uh, in Adam we all fell, in Adam we all died, etc. Well, that's the typical worldling. Uh, merely existing no real spiritual life but dead in sins but when the Lord saves a sinner what Paul's here saying is that there's this radical transformation that's wrought by God's power that is a resurrection in fact here in Ephesians his whole point is the very very power that raised Christ from the dead is that power that raised us from that spiritual death well what a mighty work of God that is then. You know, uh, John can say, we have passed from death to life. We are. We are now alive. Now this metaphor, having passed from death to life, that resurrection, picturing regeneration, is very telling about Christians, uh, those who have real and everlasting life. It, it describes to us uh, many things, especially this, that we are opposite from our past. As a Christian, you, your desires, your actions, your thoughts, your life, now living with God, for God, you're very opposite. Oh, yes, we have remaining corruption. We got that. We understand that. But the point is, regeneration is no small change. It's like a resurrection from the dead, as different as life from dead. Well, that means it's going to be recognizable. 
Let me put it this way. When Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. Well, he's still wrapped in grave clothes, right? But could you tell he was alive? Did it make any recognizable difference? Yeah. Well, so too, when the Lord raises dead sinners to spiritual life. This metaphor also underscores, though, that it's not a process. Okay? If we do certain things, then eventually this process will land us into being right with God. Absolutely not. It happens at a particular moment, just like when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. When John says, we have, have passed from death to life. Boom! There and then it happened. We may not know the exact moment, the day, etc., but there is a case of once dead and alive. In fact, the Lord Jesus, in John chapter 5, he likens it to resurrection day, but he's speaking of what he does now in raising sinners, how uh, the uh, hour is coming and now is, which all who hear the voice of the Son of Man will live. And he goes on later to talk about those in the grave will come forth at a later time. But he's saying in the hour right now, when Christ in power raises those who are spiritually dead. I've already underscored what... This teaches us that it's the work of God alone. It's by his power. You know, no amount of human effort can bring this about. And we can't make ourselves physically alive after we've died. Well, so too spiritually, we can't raise ourselves. When Jesus was asked by the disciples, who can be saved? Do you remember what he said? With men, it's impossible. But then he followed quickly. With God, all things are possible. It's God's work. It's according to his will. In fact, the Lord Jesus said in John 5, he is life to whom he will. We could do no spiritual activity in our native fallen state. We could not have spiritual desires until we may, again, just like a corpse. Which again affirms the idea that salvation is all of grace. All of grace. We didn't prepare ourselves. We didn't deserve it. That's Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, come there again, Ephesians chapter 2. Having described our deadness, he says in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he puts there in parentheses, By grace you have been saved. And in case we didn't get it, it comes down to verses 8 and 9 and says the same thing. By grace you're saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the fact that it's a resurrection, that it's this regeneration as the impartation of spiritual life. Well, that means it's all of grace. Nothing that we did or could do. You find the same thing there in the book of Titus. But it, as those who are now alive to God, well, that means we are henceforth able to live with God and for him, like here in Ephesians 2, you're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared beforehand. Not saved by good works, but as is rightly said, saved to do good works. And because now alive, well, that is it. We can. Much like when Paul writes to the Romans, why can't we go on and sin? Well, because we're joined to Christ and his life is, his death is ours, his life. As those raised in Christ, then walk in newness of life. 
Don't present your body as, and your members of your body as the sacrifices, I mean, as slaves to sin, but rather as servants of righteousness unto God as those who are now alive in Christ. Well, that's something of regeneration, okay? It's a new creation, it's a new birth, it's a resurrection from spiritual death, the impartation of spiritual life. And so, major lines of thought, well, it speaks of a radical change and an inward transformation, making those in Christ new creatures with a new life and a new heart, as I said, is being made alive spiritually. Again, it's all the work of God and of God's grace. And it is entirely indispensable, as the Lord Jesus said in John 3, 7, you must be born again. And that brings us into a second head, having defined our terms, why is regeneration necessary? Well, it is necessary, but what makes it so? Well, the simplest, the most succinct answer is because of sin. What sin did to our race when Adam fell. He ate. That day, he died spiritually. Not just him, but all humanity with him. Romans 5.12, through one man sin entered, and death spread to all men because all sin. And Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15.22. And therefore, as we've seen, well, we come into this world even, spiritually dead, an insensitivity and inability and alienated from the life of God. And it underscores that this salvation that Christ freely bestows is the undoing of the fall. When Jesus said, or when rather scripture says of Jesus, you shall call his name Jesus for he it is who will save his people from their sins. That means not only the guilt of our sin, not only the defilement of our but the other effects of sin on fallen humanity. Sin affected every part of Adam's and Adam's children's being. It's called total depravity. It doesn't mean mad, man is as bad as he possibly can be, but it does mean that every part of man has been corrupted by sin. We won't take time to trace it out, but you've got references to the mind and to the heart and to the desires and to the will all being impacted or corrupted by sin. And that means the problem is not simply what people do, it's what people are in their native fallen state. Therefore, salvation from sin must also affect every part of man's being. It's not just certain deeds and certain actions. No, it changes his desires. It's what gives rise to those desires, a new mind, a new heart, and a new will. And therefore, to that end, there must be this great internal uh, cleansing, this uh, powerful renewal that Paul refers to there in Titus, washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit poured out upon us. We're dead, well, that means life must be imparted, made alive to the spiritual realm, to know God, to live with God, to love God. So, this radical transformation in the core of man's being is necessary in order for us to rightly respond to God. Uh, in our last two studies, we looked at the subject of effectual 
calling God powerfully drawing sinners. Well, but man is to respond. Man's commanded to repent and to believe. But uh, that being so, maybe we're confronted with a dilemma. I mean, how can sinners respond? Uh, They're dead. Well, they can do no spiritual activities. They have no spiritual desires. They're totally depraved. Well, how can dead sinners desire to be saved and respond to the gospel and believe? Well, the point is, of themselves, they can't. They can't. That's why we must be born again. Without this new birth, Jesus said, they cannot see the kingdom. They cannot enter the kingdom. That which is born of flesh is flesh. At best, having a nature that cannot produce spiritual life quite powerless. And that's why Jesus said to a very religious man, you familiar with John 3, who he's talking to there? It's to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was evidently a teacher, maybe even fancied himself to be a teacher par excellence, because Jesus says, what are you, the teacher of Israel? You don't know these things? Well, he's a very religious man. He's a knowledgeable man. He's a teacher. And yet it's as if Jesus is saying, you must be born again. Your religion is not going to cut it, Nicodemus. There must be this radical transformation wrought by God, a work that is entirely God's doing, uh, as much so as the original creation, as much as raising uh, the dead physically. Well, you must have something like that. You must be born again, Nicodemus. Your religion won't do. So as dead and helpless, as I've already said, people can no more give themselves the second birth than they could their first birth. As Sinclair Ferguson put it, the one thing necessary is the one thing we ourselves cannot perform. You must be born again. Well, I can't. I can't do that. God must do this radical work that predates faith and repentance and invariably results in faith and repentance. God willing, want to come back in the afternoon study to look more at that. But for now, just this. Is this how you see salvation? This mighty work of God, this regeneration, is not just turning over a new leaf. Not just, you know, I'm going to clean up a bit. You know, I've, I've really been kind of sloppy and, and I've been a jerk. And uh, I, I just need to, to do better. I'll just start going to church maybe and and, uh, and, and I'll read my Bible and, and I'll, I'll just try and be a better person. That is not the salvation that Christ bestows. It's a new birth. It's a resurrection. It's a new creation. It's something very radical and supernatural. I mean, when Lazarus came forth from the tomb... Nobody tried to explain it in terms of natural processes. You know, look at Lazarus come out of that tomb. I still got the grave clothes. You know, he just thought, I'm tired of being dead. I think I'll just get up and walk out of here. No more being dead for me. I'm going to... No. No, he couldn't. He was dead. Well, so too with those dead and trespasses and sins. But now very much alive and enabled to live for God and with God by his mighty power. That's salvation. Now I want to follow with another question. Does that sound desirable to you? That kind of salvation, have spiritual life, real life, to desire God and actually know God, uh, to do right before God? Does that sound 
at all desirable to you? That, that something you really want? That you want to live for God? If not, it only proves what Scripture declares about man's native condition. Spiritually dead. That's your state. Spiritually. Like a corpse. You've no interest in wonderful activities. I've illustrated in the past about certain foods. Uh, what can I illustrate with? Uh, let's, let's talk about people like ice cream, right? Now, if you're from the Pacific Northwest, as some people, uh, you might know about Tillamook ice cream. And even now, I understand you get it at Walmart. Here, Tillamook ice cream. Okay. This is fantastic stuff. But, yeah, ah, you've had it. Ah, good. There we go. See, not even from the Pacific Northwest, and you've had it. There you go. Well, Tillamook ice cream. So we go down here to the local morgue, and we put this really good raspberry cheesecake. That's a really nice flavor. Their chocolate's good, too. But we take this, and we say, here, won't you have some of this? This is really good, man. I mean, you, this is Tillamook. This is all the way from out west. What kind of response are you going to get? From that corpse. Maybe you can even pry. This is gross. You pry his mouth open and put some of it in there, right? Nothing. No appreciation. The problem's not with the ice cream. The person's dead. They have no taste for it. They have no ability to appreciate. That's man spiritually. So when I said... Does this salvation sound desirable to you? No, I'd rather be left alone and go my own way. You're just proving what the Bible says of you. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. You've no desire, no taste, no understanding. A walking corpse, if you please, at least spiritually. And that's why Jesus said to a very religious man, Nicodemus, very religious, you must be born Again, it won't do simply to go to church. Won't do to, well, just do the best you can when it's convenient anyway. To outwardly conform to certain rules and religiosity. No, no, it'll leave you dead. You need God's mighty power. You need God's marvelous mercy. You are utterly helpless. You cannot change yourself. Recognize even in your lack of interest in things. I want to live for me and go my own way and I don't want this religious stuff only if it's convenient and fits into my agenda. Recognize what that declares about you. You're dead. You by nature are a child of wrath. You're a heartbeat away from being physical dead but also spiritually dead forever. Even that second death that scripture speaks of. Recognize your state. Recognize your problem. And it's a problem. It's not what's okay. It's a problem. You're dead. Well, won't you cry out into God for mercy? Won't you uh, cry out that God would do this wonderful work and give you real life? A new birth? A new heart? Oh, but going back to what I've already said, maybe someone said, well, wait a minute, how can I? I'm dead. Well, that's true. But that's not to be your concern. I hope you have some understanding of your need. And do you know that God is merciful? Do you know what's called the gospel? That Christ Jesus came into this world suffering the just in place of the unjust that he might bring sinners like us to God? 
died, buried, ah, but rose from the dead, and now ever lives to save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. In fact, he himself commands and invites sinners to come. Believe on the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Well, I don't understand how that works. Well, you don't have to understand. Lazarus didn't have to understand. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me to come forth from the tomb, and yet I'm dead. I have... It wasn't his to try and figure out. It's for him to do what Jesus said. And here's what Jesus says. Repent and believe the good news. Christ came into this world to save sinners. Well, even to be like that uh, publican in the parable in Luke 18 and verse 13, how he just beat his breast and couldn't even look up. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he meant it. And God did show mercy. He went down to his house, justified, saved that day. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Go to Christ. Trust in Christ. Cry out to him. The fact that Lazarus came forth from the tomb, well, it proves that he was indeed raised by the power of Jesus. And so you, go to Christ. Be saved by him. But now for you, dear brother, dear sister, you see, notwithstanding our remaining corruption, you see that you have been given this new life. And the Bible draws out many applications from it. Uh, Hopefully in the afternoon service we'll come back to at least some. But I want to begin by applying it this way. See in this God's heart toward you. Why would God so deal with you? You're dead. Trespasses and sins alienated from the life of God and you were quite happy about it. Come on, let's be honest. Those of us who are saved uh, after we'd spent time going our own way and living sin like sheep going our own way. Why would God deal with you and give you new life? Well, Titus chapter 3 that we read earlier. It's when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. That is, came with power to you. The kindness and the love. Ephesians chapter 2 says much the same. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Here's what explains you, Christian. It's the mercy, the kindness, the love, the grace of God. That's it. That's the point of emphasis. When Titus is going to write about regeneration, that's his point. Here's God's kindness and God's love. When Paul's going to write about it there in Ephesians 2, here's what it is. That great love with which he's loved us. Not according to works of righteousness. All according to his own heart towards you. Well, therefore, the application I'll draw is see Christ's heart, God's heart, towards you. And answer this. If God so loves you then... Indeed, even enough to send his only begotten son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for your sin. If God so loved you then, when he regenerated you, when you were dead in sin, what about now? What about now? Less now? Less now? Now that he's given you the new birth and raised you and recreated you into his image? Less love? Less mercy? Less grace? No. It's that same disposition unceasingly 
he wanted you then, chose you before time, made you his own in time, and does so still, always, without exception. Oh, but me and my sin, and you don't know how dead and dull I can be, and I... No, my friend, see the heart of God towards you. That very same disposition that raised you from the dead spiritually, it's that same heart of love towards you still. Well then, brethren, let's be melted before God to recognize what he's done. You give me new birth. Real life. Recognize why he's done it. Because of that kindness. Because of that love. You know this, right? I mean, this is not the first. I've never heard anything like this before. No, we know this. But how often do we really think about it? Of God's disposition toward us. You know that you've been born again. You see the evidence. Especially the evidence of faith in Christ. We'll see why. It's because the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. It's because of that great love with which he loved us and still loves us. How real is that to you? What does it do to you? What should it do to you? Well, how right that we, like Paul, should be presenting our very bodies a living sacrifice in response to that love. We're his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. How right we should then, out of love, loving him who first loved us, to give ourselves with a greater zeal to do that which is pleasing in his sight. Well, we'll come back to this, God willing, in the afternoon. But as I say, I thought this was the right application with which to begin. See in your new birth the heart of God towards you, dear brother, dear sister. How are you responding? How will you respond? How will you respond when tempted to sin? How will you respond when you see the carnalities of your own remaining corruption? How will you respond? My God help us to love him who first loved us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for that great grace. And that great love with which you've loved us. We thank you for Christ our Savior. We thank you for the new birth. We thank you for giving us hearts to know you. Hearts that desire you. Lord, we would pray for any who are yet strangers to your grace, who are dead in their sins, that this would be a day that you would cause your gospel to come home to them with power. They might recognize their lost state, but they also might recognize the grace of God in Jesus Christ to save all kinds of sinners. Father, we pray to love you more. Help us to contemplate these things and to see your heart in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.